Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of Dano Says So, brought to you by Trust Records as part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Today's guest was a front and center player on all of the materials that sort of gave me my start in punk rock. And what I mean by that is in the mid and early 80s, there were a few things that I wore out. One of them was the Youth Brigade Sound and Fury LP. Another one was my VHS copy of Another State of Mind. You throw those on top of all the seven seconds and minor threat that were filtering through my brain and pointing me in a certain direction, and they are irreplaceable. Sean Stern was the vocalist of Youth Brigade and the founder of the BYO, the Better Youth Organization and BYO Records, both of which played a huge part in the two pieces I've talked about. What stood out to me about Sean when I was younger was that he seemed a constructive type and a big thinker, that he didn't seem to think anything was impossible. Later in life, I sit here and I look at things like punk rock bowling, just the sheer scale of it and the size of the operation and the logistics involved. And I think to myself, not much has changed with this guy. Anyway, I sat down recently with Sean to ask him about that and a lot else. Let's go ahead and take a listen. All right, Sean Stern, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Right off the bat, I wanted to ask you about a pattern that I perceive. And you may tell me that it's a, purely in my head. You may tell me that it's a very real thing. But going all the way back to Skinhead Manor, which was essentially, to my perception, a big prototypical punk house, the type of which started to erupt all over the country later, um, with Godzilla's, which seemed to me like an oversized industrial space, sort of half utilized for shows. With Youth Movement in 82, which is hardcore being staged in the Hollywood Palladium at a very early date, with using a school bus to go on a hardcore tour, and then eventually with what punk rock bowling became, there seems to me with you and perhaps with your brothers to be a bit of a go big or go home mindset. Is that my imagination? I don't think we really thought these things through other than it's just the whole nature of DIY to us was... Mm -hmm just the practical thing that we had experienced. There's something we wanted to do when we would just do it. We'd figure out how to do it and we'd do it. It wasn't, you know, we never thought let's find someone else to do it for us. We just thought, okay, let's figure out how you do it and let's do it. You know, it was never go big or go home necessarily. It was just when there was a challenge, we would find a solution for it. That was how we worked. That's how I've always worked. And, you know, my brothers came along for the ride more or less and helped and help figure it out with me. I mean, they, everyone in the family has their certain talents. I might be, you know, the cheerleader. I might be the one to follow me sort of thing, but it's always, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Really? That's really what it comes down to. I mean, it might be happenstance that typically just the actual physicality, these things, these things, the venues, the size of the crowd, everything else, right. They were almost always bigger than the punk rock norm. And one thing that, I know, like, for instance, uh, at the end of the documentary, but I believe I've heard you say it in other spaces that I thank you for and I concur and that I consider these stories, the things we just mentioned to be evidence of, is that things were always biggest in Los Angeles. If just by sheer numbers, I feel like this is the unsung center of punk rock over the last 35, 40 years. Well, since the, since the late 70s, early 80s, uh, L.A. has been the world center of punk rock. I mean. And sadly, so underappreciated and, uh, you know, it wasn't until really the 90s when you had, you know, the resurgence of punk rock and bands like Bad Religion and, and Brett sort of 
getting Epitaph to, 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 you know, push all these new bands. I mean, it, it was really spurred on by the grunge scene in Nirvana and the success there, which in, in part was fueled by success of bands like who may not have necessarily been punk bands out of it, like Faith No More and the Pixies and stuff like that. And then, you know, all that. And then Green Day, of course, coming from Northern California and going to a major label and being successful as a punk band. But really, when you have Epitaph and Bad Religion and then The Offspring and then Rancid and No Effects and all that, that's when it really blew up here. But you were having shows when we were when we were promoting shows back in the early 80s and we started working with Golden Boys. You were getting shows at the Olympic Auditorium where we're regularly drawing four to five thousand people. Nowhere else in the world was that really happening unless it was for, you know, The Clash or some big English band. And that was pretty rare. And that was still here. I don't even know that it was happening. New York wasn't drawing, having that huge of a crowd. London, as far as I know, wasn't anymore after the maybe in the early late 70s, early 80s. And then the whole thing kind of came tumbling down. But here it was consistently doing that through, even though it started to drop off with the violence and then, you know, everything moved over to Fenders, which was definitely what, not even half the size of the, of the Olympic Auditorium. But that resurgence in the 90s just blew up and it mainly blew up here in Southern California. I've always long contended that people see the Olympic, you know, I, I started going to shows in 83. I met you in the, in the mid eighties, but the most jarring experience of my teenage years was the first time I went to a show at the Olympic. And I've long held the people who see old flip side videos from the Olympic or see good old, you know, Kirk photography and things from the Olympic, they're seeing stage, stage shots. And they don't realize that for better or worse, what we're looking at is unpoliced, punk rock or hardcore punk rock arena shows. I mean, they're fucking huge. Yeah, they're they're pretty big. But thankfully, it was a much more active show than arena shows because I'd gone to some of those rock arena shows in the mid-70s, lining up and getting my, my drugs all in line and going with my whole crew of friends about... It was more about what you were going to be high on at the certain time that a certain band was going to play a certain song um, than it was about the music, although the music was definitely important. And those were such a non-interactive uh, experience compared yeah. to what punk rock was, which is why one of the things that drew me to it. Although when I first got in the punk scene, it was very, very small. I mean, it was the summer of 78. It was the year that uh, Generation X 100 Punks Rule song came out. And that was pretty much the scene in LA. It, it was a little bigger than that, but not much. And that but that Canterbury mass scene was about a hundred punks, you know, that, that were there. Yeah. Almost big. That's my perception. So of these things that I perceived as being habitually bigger than people would expect, the one that I think, you know, how, now has a long and deep history and is enormous is punk rock bowling. Um, and I'd like to find out, you know, firsthand uh, the most accurate, you know, casual conversation slice I can get of its evolution and what it was like to be at the helm of that. And I mean, and some philosophical questions and everything else. First off, did it really begin intended primarily as a social gathering? Yeah. Mark and I had done parties in high school and that's where we first started promoting. And then when, you know, we, we started doing uh, playing in bands and things what you mentioned earlier about Godzilla's, we, there, a lot of the clubs had shut down or wouldn't in the halls, people move stuff into halls. That's how we got into doing shows for ourselves and other bands that were friends and touring bands. So we, we'd been in doing promotion and then we got really 
busy with a label and booking our tour and working with bands to help book tours and touring ourselves. So, you know, we'd, we'd been putting on shows, which for us was always a party, you know, it's a show, but it's also, we, we, we play to have fun. We want everybody that comes to have a good time. That's always been our motivation, right? We want people to come and enjoy the music and also enjoy the social gathering and seeing your friends and getting together. That's part of the, for us, the community coming together. That's an important part of, for me and, and, and my friends and family, that's what punk rock is all about. It's a community, you know? So the idea for punk rock bowling came about because uh, we had heard, we were running BYL Records, this guy, Andre, who was doing a zine out of Dalton, Massachusetts, Andre Dubay. Um, I can't remember the name of the zine. I'm sure you can find it somewhere. Um, he moved to LA at some point and started working for BYO. And at some point he heard that Fat Records up in San Francisco was doing this bowling league. And he's all, we should do that here because we live, you know, down here in Venice and there's a bowling alley in Santa Monica, not far from here. And so he said, sure, why not? Bowling's fun. You know, you can go and you can drink and you can bowl and get together with your friends. And it's lots of fun. So we started doing that. We didn't know at the time until we started bowling that Andre is actually an excellent bowler. Um, and so he became, you know, the anchor of our team and we did pretty well, but we had Epitaph had a team and some of those guys are actually also excellent bowlers. So that league went on on Sunday nights, I believe it was Sunday or Monday nights. I can't remember for about maybe two and a half months. And everybody had a really good time. And Mark and I were saying, this is fun. We should do this again. And we love Vegas because we love to gamble. And we thought we could do this in Vegas as a party just for a weekend. And that's pretty much how it came about. We, we started doing it, um, I believe, is around President's Day weekend because that's actually when we had originally done the Youth Movement 82 and the Youth Movement 83 because three-day weekends, they're always good. People have got holidays. And we thought, we'll go to Vegas. We'll set this up. We'll just invite friends from other bands and labels. And we got about 27 bowling teams to come out and we did a show because we're all musicians and, and it was a blast. We all had a great time. It was just a party just for fun, um, not really to make money or anything, but that's how punk rock bowling started. And it grew pretty quickly um, to the point where we people were, you know, really trying hard to get a bowling team and we had to expand it and, at first, you had to be invited, you know, not anybody could just sign up, um, mainly because we had so many friends and so many bands that wanted to do it. There was just no room for us to open it up to the public. And other bands would set up shows around it, but we would always do a kickoff party on Friday night. And then we would have a, an awards party for the bowlers that was just kind of a joke, you know, mm -hmm. to give trophies out and do a little presentation and make jokes and give out an actual trophy to the worst team, which was Tilt Wheel most years, because they they had some skill. Not to name names. No, but they 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 loved that they were the last place team. I mean, they did it on, they seemed to do it on purpose. One year they they managed to bowl um one a frame where they all bowled just one pin. I don't know. That's that takes actual talent, you know. Just knock down one pin, all four people on your team when you're really bad bowlers. So that's what it was. It was just a party that kind of grew and morphed and got bigger. And then in the 10th year, we got a visit from a guy 
because we were over at Samstown for years, which is outside of the strip in downtown. It's in Henderson, but it was perfect. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Samstown, but it's it's a seniors. It's really a local hangout, and it's mostly seniors that go there. But they loved us, you know. the The people in the hotel loved us, and the and the people that the regulars there loved us because we may look weird, but we're pretty nice people when you get to know us, and uh, we were there just to have fun and people figure that out pretty quick, you know? So this guy shows up one year when we're bowling and he says, Hey, you should come out and check out my new bowling alley, state of the art. And we thought, you know, we don't really care. We're just here. We're not serious bowlers. We're just here to have a good time. Um, and he's, but then he said, come check it out. And I also have this amphitheater. And we said, amphitheater is so you can use that for free. And we thought, okay, that is something we want to check out. So, that's when we realized we were we would be able to do an all weekend festival. That was actually also in Henderson, even further outside. But uh, we were able to cobble that together and, and put a three day festival on at this outdoor amphitheater on the premises of this casino. Um, and it went over really well, even though one, the last day the weather was ridiculous, super super windy. We had to drop the lights down because they wanted to blown over on people's heads and yeah but that was great and then they they seemed to not really get what we were doing um so we weren't really welcome back and <laughs> shocking yeah um uh they i think they just didn't make as much money as the 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 guy who was in charge expected to make so then we figured we found out from somebody we knew we could set this up downtown in vegas and that's when that's pretty much when the festival kicked off you know that was the year that it morphed into an actual festival and we moved downtown and that from then it's just been growing and growing the one of the things that interests me because oftentimes those business relationships can be different from ownership to ownership was when did it become multiple venue as far as the concerts go it was always multiple venues in the sense of we would do that friday show you know, we do it at Hunt Ridge. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's an old, it was an old movie theater. It's, it's shut down and now these guys have been fixing it up, making it nice. It holds about 1,500 people. And when the Hunt Ridge shut down, we moved over to the House of Blues. So, you know, it was decent-sized shows, decent-sized bands would come. You know, No Effects would headline one year. We had Pennywise another year. We had Dropkick Murphys another year. Um, Fog and Molly one year. That was a good one. Fog and Molly. Well, I think Fog and Molly may have been one of the first times that we were at the house of blues and we went to meet with the the beverage manager at the house of blues and we said hey uh you know it would be great if you we have some sponsor some alcohol sponsors be great if you bring their product in you know most of the times they would sell it already anyway so it was no problem it's just try to get them to do drink specials but guinness we said guinness is a is a sponsor and they're they're actually a sponsor of the band so you pre you need to make sure because people are going to drink a lot of guinness and we, we've encountered this attitude a lot when we were in Vegas of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't tell me how to do my job. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> they ran out of Guinness within the first hour of the show. So he clearly didn't know how to do his job. As a, as a guy who has run Irish pubs for a good portion of his life, you probably should have told him that night is going to be like three St. Patrick's, you know? But he, you know. We've, we've had this happen before with other people, beverage managers at casinos, you know, yeah, yeah, I know what I'm doing. And then they mm -hmm. drink. I mean, I'm talking the first night 
empty out the casino. They don't have any more booze left. We, we were at the um, Gold Coast. That's where we first started bowling was the Gold Coast. Um, and one year we were there and there was a, the, a little bar across the street that had, we did our party at the first night kickoff party because um, it was early on. So we, we had about six or 700 people went to that. Um, that guy understood. We told him, we said, look, you're going to sell a lot of booze. Our people drink a lot. He, he listened to us and he had a killer night, probably one of his best nights ever. Mm-hmm. But we told the guy at the Gold Coast, we said, look, we're going to bowl in the afternoon. Oh, no, this was Friday night. I said, you're going to have a bunch of people because we sold a big block of rooms there. And they're going to be partying and drinking. And then at about 8 o'clock, everyone's going to leave. And they're going to go across the street to this show. And then at about two in the morning, they're all going to come back in your casino. So you need to make sure that you staff it late at night. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't worry about it. Of course, he didn't. He had it pretty staffed and it was super busy. And then everybody left. They said, oh, everybody's gone. Cut the staff. There was one or two bartenders left. 600, 700 people come storming back in. We cleaned out the gas station that was on the way across the street. We cleaned, and the guy, my little brother, Jamie said, I went into the the gas station to get some booze. And the guy said, who are you people? I don't have any liquor left in my whole place. And he's all, that's a, you're complaining? (laughs) The guy's all, no, but I just want to know. And and then when we went back into the casino, there was just the one or two bartenders at the huge bar just inundated, you know, a couple older guys, and they didn't know what the hell they were doing. The cocktail waitress was running around. There was a band in their lounge that was doing a cha-cha-cha through the casino with our people, like a, a limbo. It was, it was crazy. It was fun. The little market store gift shop or whatever they have in the casino that sells liquor, clean that out as well. This was just Friday night. Before we get too far from something that you said a few minutes ago, before it's too far in the rearview mirror, um, something you brought up when you were talking about uh, the Guinness sponsorship, I thought about, have you had, I mean, I, I suspect you deal largely with vendors that you're well comfortable with in advance, but have you ever had somebody who is putting money into this or who is actively sponsoring the event become content sensitive when they realized what some of the bands were about or? Hmm. No, because most of the people that we've dealt with have been pretty aware of what it is they're getting involved in. So it's never been a situation of, yeah, we want to sponsor your festival. And then, oh, wait a sec. We had no idea that there was all this politics involved. You right. know, that kind of thing. We did have some difficulties when no effects said some stupid shit from stage a few years you're, ago. You're raising that subject for me, which is kind of a relief. So go on. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't even remember because I was on stage and I didn't hear it, but I admittedly I was drunk and partying. And, you know, sometimes people say stupid shit, make stupid jokes. And uh, unfortunately, I guess somebody was, it, I mean, what they said wasn't funny. All right, let me say, mm-hmm. let me say that out straight out loud. It was dumb. It was in very, very poor taste. And, it, you know, they should have never said it. It was just, I, I don't understand why they did. They have the right to say whatever they want. They have the freedom to do it. I don't condone it. And I I, I was not happy that when it all came out because basically somebody videotaped it and sent it off to some media show to, you know. Did it make the following year troublesome between you and the city? No, the city, no. The venue, yes. Okay. There was a with the venue. But we managed to work that out. But 
that the venue, the city, everyone understood because we got out in front of it and said, look, you know, no, Mike's a friend of mine. The band's fr they're friends of mine. I said to them, Hey guys, you know, it was really not a smart thing to do and we're going to get out in front of it. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to throw you under the bus. We're going to, but we're going to have to make a statement. You should too. I'm not going to tell you to apologize. I know this is what you guys do, but if it was me, I said, we're going to apologize because had we, if you had said to us, we're going to make this comment, we would have said, fuck no, that's stupid. Don't do that. So is Las you know? Vegas, maybe the one city where punk rock's taking over downtown for a good part of the week could actually work. Because I, I was out last time I was out, I was there during 2018 and I was surprised at how natural it all felt. I also, it also struck me as a heavy lift because one night I'm pounding Jameson and playing cards in the golden nugget at about three. And it occurs to me that every bar within eyesight is still full. And then I figured you were probably still on the clock somewhere. And I was like, this thing's great, but this thing's probably also a little bit of a bitch for the working folk. Well, luckily we have, I have a, 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 a pretty good crew that takes care of most everything that I can actually enjoy myself most of the weekend. So yeah, it, 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 there is a lot of moving pieces, no doubt about it. And uh, it's amazing some years that we are like this year, especially that we managed to pull it off. And sometimes I, I wonder how we pull it off. It's some of the crap that goes on, but uh, you know, people really appreciate what we do and they, have been amazingly respectful of what it is we do because it's kind of back to the way it was at Godzilla's, you know, when we ran that club, one of the reasons that it was successful is that people understood that it was being run by the people in the scene and the friends of yours. And that, you know, you don't want to fuck it up because if you fuck it up, you're fucking it up for yourself. And I, well, I feel most people understand this. Well, the whole question of the values behind the organization is something I want to circle back to because it'll segue nice with, nicely to politics. But it 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 is now that I'm talking to you, it occurs to me that for the people who aren't in it because of their passion, for ancillary people, for ordinarily ordinary relatives and Las Vegas working people, it's a very profitable week. It's a sure. it's not a loser situation for them. No, right. So. They they realize this. They have realized this. Most of them realize this. There are some that don't. We've, we've been told that, you know, that our business wasn't wanted at a few places. Yeah. You know, okay. Um, mm -hmm. We had difficulties getting into some other places. And then once we get a foot in the door, they realize, holy shit, why were we afraid? <laughs> you know? Um, so yes, I, you know, we live in a market capitalist world, sadly, for better or worse, that's the reality that most people respond to. So, this year you had to reschedule three times, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know why, but I, I, let's do the horse's mouth. Yeah, yeah, I mean, COVID, of course. We weren't able to do it until September, and even September was still, you know, we were up until the week of, it was just a matter of, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to put on a super spreader event, you know? I don't want to... I don't want to put people at their health at risk. I don't, but at the same time, people had paid money. I, I mean, let me say, first off, it's pretty amazing to me, the support we got from all the people who bought tickets for 2020 for Memorial day, 2020. And we, we offered refunds and over half of the people who had already bought their tickets held on to those tickets for, yeah. you know, a year and a half. 
that's the kind of support and love that we get from the people that come and enjoy punk rock bowling every year. So without that, we would have no festival. And I, I say it every year. We are only as good as the people who support us. We would never be able to do that without the people that come and support us every year, year in, year out. I admire the stick to and not just waiting for the thing to be in the rearview mirror before making it happen. Could you kind of let us know what precautions I've read up on it, but could you kind of share with the listener what precautions were required to attend this year? Yeah. I mean, so we announced um, a couple months before, you know, we were going back and forth trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to, and we'd heard some of the shit shows, the venue had told us that, you know, they'd done some shows in the summer and they tried to say only people with vaccinations can come in and show a vaccination card. And then, you know, the management and the, the staff was at the door trying to look at the cards. They said it was a bullshit show. It was totally unmanageable. It can't be done. And we said, okay, you can't do it, but we can do it. We'll figure something else. We went back and forth and Luckily, our production manager, Kathy Mason, she managed to make a deal. First, we were talking to the clear people. They wanted a bunch of money, and we went back and forth with them. And they weren't really able to offer anything other than tell people to put their vaccination card on on this app. And then, okay, great. Can you give us a report of how many people showed up and got the No, we can't do that. Why am I paying you money? And then the guy said, well, you you can just use the app for free. And cause my brother had said, well, just tell people to use the app. It's free anyway. Why should we pay them? And I said, okay, but we have been negotiating with them. Like I can't, really, <laughs> I can't really do it on my own. But then the guy said, okay, Hey, just use it for free because we, we started, re- you know, we did a lot of research and tried to figure out somebody from somebody who worked at the golden nugget who previously worked at the golden nugget had told people at the golden nugget, Hey, I'm working on this this company now that provides testing. So through a bunch of different back and forth, we found this company that would provide the testing um, for people who weren't vaccinated uh, for free, you know, because of CARES Act, which, which was great. And so what, what we decided was, look, uh, we'll just say that if you want to come, you have to show proof of vaccination. If you don't have proof of vaccination, you can be tested on site. We'll provide it. I know that Life is Beautiful, which was held the week before and has 30 or 40,000 people a day, decided they were going to test everyone each day. Because when you think about it, if you don't test everyone, you don't know. But then, of course, what do you know? If somebody was exposed to the virus, the incubation period can be anywhere from three to seven days. You could test someone, they could be a carrier, yet they would show up potentially negative. It just seemed to me that there's no way to provide an absolute sense of safety, especially considering the fact that as soon as they leave that festival, they're going back out into the general population on Fremont Street, in the casinos, in the restaurants, in the bars, with people who aren't haven't been tested, they don't know if they have a vaccine. So what can we do? We can try and say, look, we prefer you to have a vaccine if you come to this festival. You're gonna show us that vaccine digitally so that we don't have to deal with people trying to forge vaccine cards, right? Mm-hmm. Put it on, on your phone. If that's a problem for you, we'll provide a test. If that's a problem for you, we'll give you a refund. Don't come. Those are your choices. So we had some pushback, but it was, it was pretty small. For the majority of it, 
people were pretty happy with what we did, even though most people know that it's a great grand gesture and uh, it made me feel better. But at the end of the day, who knows? The whole thing's such a crapshoot, right? Mm -hmm. I will say that from anecdotal evidence, because I have no way of knowing, the amount of people that went home after punk rock bowling and contracted COVID was that I know about was less than I can count on two hands. That doesn't mean there weren't more people, but I think we got that space in there. It was outdoors for most of it. There were some of the indoor clubs and stuff, but we were pretty lucky. We just got in that window before, you know, things were starting to calm down. Um, and then within a few weeks after things started gradually moving back up and now you got another variant. Well, yeah, I think at some point the question just becomes, are we going to sit there and think, okay, live music is, is dead because, you know, fighting airborne viruses may just be, you know, may just be a byproduct of human behavior over the last century, you know, like the new normal, new normal just may require a higher concern with safety. You mentioned pushback and I want to bring up pushback of a different kind um, before we move on from punk rock bowling. And it's one that I was guilty of in the years that I really started to think about it or look at the festival. And then with greater exposure to it, I, I have a very different take and then what was funny is doing my research for this, I was like, Jesus, in many, many ways, Sean is still very much the, the guy that I saw playing in the 80s. But what I was going to say is, have you experienced much negative feedback from what I would call punk rock traditional? Because, I mean, this massive concert stage and the size of this venture is not the punk rock any of us grew up on. You know, we, we're, we're not that much bigger than the biggest Olympic shows. You know, we're... We're now up to about 8,000 people. And the Olympic yeah. at its height on the biggest shows was around 5,000, right? And this is a bigger space and it's outdoors. Look, I love going to club shows. And we have club shows. Mm -hmm. And if you want to come out for the weekend and just go to the smaller club shows that range anywhere from 350 capacity to 1,500 capacity, oh, more power to you. I get it. I think there's a limit to this, the amount of uh, the, the size of the crowd that we're going to have at this because of the type of music that we're doing. There just isn't much bigger of a crowd you're going to draw unless you're in Southern California. And then you're going to maybe be able to draw 10 to 15,000 people possibly, potentially. And we still, a huge draw for Punk Rock Bowling comes out of Southern California. Probably 50 to 60% of the crowd is yeah. actually coming from Southern California. I mean, traditionalist what is that people people have been bitching since back in the 70s of who is or who isn't punk and who's cool and who isn't i don't give a shit about that you, you know that's purely subjective like what you like i love all kinds of music you know and i would love to put we've brought in a lot a wide variety of music that many people might people bitched when we brought diva you know i saw diva in 1978 at the starwood i love them they are one of the most punk rock bands that I could ever think of. If you look and you research what Devo, how Devo started and what they were all about, they've always been a punk band. Sure, they got famous. Good for them. I'm happy for them. Mm -hmm. People trying to make a living off their music, I have no problem with that. If you want to mm -hmm. be a purist, be a purist, that's fine. Don't go. That's what my, my, When people complain, I always say to them, if you don't like it, start your own festival. Right. DIY, baby. Go do your own. No one's stopping you. If you don't like it, don't come. Start your own festival. 
we we try to keep i believe we keep the price is reasonable for everything not just the ticket the, the you know the room packages that we do the prices for the alcohol the festival the, the specials with our sponsors that we partner up with the the variety of food that we offer and trying to keep people understand that you know we want people to be able to try the, the food and and to drink and to pace themselves and to have a good time for the entire weekend and not you know spend a, an outrageous fortune but hey you know if you're your kid, chances are you're not going to be able to afford to come out and do this. I get it. I understand. This is not inexpensive, but um, that's just the reality. You got to travel. Uh, our, the crowd that we get from Vegas is 10, 12% of the people that come to punk rock rolling because it's just, it's not a big punk scene in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a great punk scene. There's lots of great people out there. Most, many of the people that work our crew are from Vegas, and we appreciate all of them. Let's talk about a line in the sand that you do draw, and I think to your credit, that in, in, in your own website and in uh, the about materials, make it very clear, you know, that none, you know, anti-racism, anti-fascism, anti-homophobia, you make this, this statement about, about content that I think is admirable, necessary, good. What is interesting to me is, I think there was a time when that was the norm or where that was the bar that had to be met in this music. And I don't know that that applies now. And while I think it might apply more to the creative class surrounding punk rock bowling bowling, and surrounding punk rock in general, what's heartbreaking to me is that I think it's largely irrelevant to the consumer. What do you think? (sighs) Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know It, it. Then you could have the whole discussion about, music and politics you know mm-hmm. I've, I've heard people bitching on social media that uh you know punk rock is not political bullshit mm-hmm. punk rock has always been political you know if you like my band and you don't know that we're a political band you're not listening and you're not understanding the words that i've been speaking about since the late 70s and early 80s and all the music that i've done it's always been political because for me life is political right and punk rock the reason I've always been drawn to punk rock is because it gives you the freedom and the, uh, to ex- express the fact that life is political. Whether you want to acknowledge that or not, that's up to you. But in it, not necessarily in a political sense of Republican Democrat, which is, you know, unfortunately, the, <laughs> the the low bar that we've set in this country. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that getting on stage and singing about stuff is kind of a political act for me. Maybe not for everybody. It is for me. And I'm, I'm lucky to be able to have that platform to express my ideas. And hopefully it inspires people to go out in their daily uh, life and try and uh, make the world a better place for everyone. Um, well, that's the way I've always operated. I will never change that. Um, and of course, the festival that I run um, is going to reflect that. You know, And if people have a problem with it, again, don't come. It's, okay. it's to me... It's interesting in your social networks, you know, you are, you are clearly no fan of Donald Trump and you also will speak pointedly about the homeless situation in Southern California, a lot, a lot of economic imbalances, things like that. To me, it's always beautiful when you see an old punk rocker who's still, who's still got their fist towards the sky. Did you ever imagine that so many people, I'm assuming it's the same for you that it's been for me, but that so many people we grew up with would end up leaning right older later in life? 
Um, I have to say, but you're down in Orange County, aren't you? Yeah, I, I live on the wrong side of the Berlin Wall. It's true. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's the difference, right? I, I don't think there's a ton of people that I've grown up with that I'm friends with still that are leaning right. I think, you know, as you get older, you tend, some people, a lot of people tend to mellow. But that right-leaning aspect I saw in many of my friends, people that I became friendly with in Huntington Beach. And, uh, you know, it, it was more at that time more of a, a, an attitude of fuck the government, which I could relate to, um, not fuck the liberals. <laughs> it was just fuck the government. I think a lot of people that like to claim libertarian don't really understand what that means and i or they they utilize they use that thing of libertarian to promote a lot of stupid ignorant bullshit that they just don't really think through and most most of the time when i sit down with people and talk about these things and really have a discussion with them they're not as you know radical as they think they are and the, the thing that really the one thing i will say is that I find that the people on the extremes of both sides have a lot more in common than they realize. Sadly, they're both, you know, they're both embracing uh, a very, well, zealotry, basically. It's my way or the highway, whether, you know, whether you're extreme, extreme left or extreme right, they believe, like a religious zealot, that the, only their philosophy is the only one to follow, and anyone who doesn't agree with them is wrong and should be, is their enemy. And that to me is not how politics should work or life should work. Life is about sitting down with fellow human beings, discussing the issues and coming to a compromise to make things better for everyone. Um, and there's just not enough of that in this world. And that's why you have so many of the problems that we have, especially in this country, one of the richest countries in the world where you can walk down the street in many neighborhoods in Los Angeles, one of the richest cities in the world, and San Francisco, and many of the cities in New York too, and find people sleeping on the street out of their minds with mental health and addiction problems. And we're spending millions of dollars to help them, and they're not getting the help that they should be getting. And that, to me, is insane. Agreed. Absolutely. Well, listen, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up here, but not without a sharing my, my full circle statement. Um, the first person I ever interviewed, I don't know whether this came up when you were talking to Trust and when uh, you and I were emailing, but the first person I ever interviewed in any way, shape, or form was you back when I was a kid and was in your apartment up in L.A. I don't know if your audio is still on, but it is nice to find common ground and shared perspective lasting 37, 38 years. That kind of thing is yeah. one, of those, one of those unique uh punk rock touchstones that I'm grateful for. So uh, thank you for providing it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm glad to see you're still doing the same stuff. Which apartment was it? Do you remember? It was not that long after Skinhead Manor. And for some reason, did you ever live in, in, in WeHo or in North Hollywood? Yeah. Was it, was it in the back over the garages? Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah that was the yeah. florist house. That was a, that was a, that was a compound of a, an amazing place that lasted for about a year. And then they tore that down and built condos. But the the landlord of that place was a super nice guy, and we had some pretty amazing times there. A lot, yeah. You know, that's where Minor Threat stayed at that, that house. That's where the Misfits stayed at that house. And, uh, well, I told you, I told you at the Flash Dance at a show at the Flash Dance that I wanted to do an interview 
and the parking lot scene there was quickly becoming a bit of a nightmare. And when you suggested I just come up to your place, I was like, um, yeah, I could do that. So, you know, <laughs> teenage stories, sometimes, so, some, sometimes they circle back. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a classic place. A lot of bands came through. That's when we were promoting quite a few shows out in the Valley at the roller rink uh, and some different halls and clubs. And that was the time eventually when we, we, we that was around the time of Godzilla us too. So. Okay. All right. Well, listen, that is episode 39. Sean, I cannot thank you enough. Hey, thank you. I really, really appreciate it. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there.